Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Barry Meyer on Spooked. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the current events and politics category for episode number 136 with Josh Rogan on Chaos Under Heaven. This is Josh Rogan, author of Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Barry Meyer is a former New York Times reporter and a member of the Times team that won a Pulitzer for international reporting in 2017. He's also a two-time winner of the George Polk Award for investigative reporting and a best-selling author whose new book is another good one. It's called Spooked, the Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. Barry, thank you for the time. How you doing today? Real good, Trace. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. It's my pleasure, and this is a fascinating story that you tell in Spooked. What made you want to write a book about the private spying industry? Back in uh, late 2017, early 2018, I was just retiring from the New York Times after more than 30 years there. And um, there were a number of big stories that were breaking out. One was the story of the Steele dossier, you know, this opposition research reports about Donald Trump. The other one was the Harvey Weinstein case in which a number of actresses were accusing him of sexual misconduct. And the third case involved this company, Theranos, this high-flying medical testing company whose product turned out to be a fraud. And I realized that there was a thread that was connecting all of these cases and that in all of them, you know, corporate investigators or private spies, as I call them, had been hired by uh, various parties to the case to dig up dirt on, you know, their political or legal adversaries. And I thought, you know, like, here's this whole industry out there. Uh, I learned it was like a big industry, you know, it's like making over a billion dollars a year. And I thought, you know, why don't we just flip the script and start investigating the investigators and, and see what turns out? While the focus is obviously private spies, why did the first chapter examine the journalism industry? Well, I tried to uh, examine the journalism industry throughout for the following reasons. Um, Investigators and private spies have to find and or often want to find a means to get their information into public view. So if they dig up dirt on someone, well, what good does it do their client if that information just sits somewhere in a file? So traditionally what has happened is that uh, these operatives will seek out a journalist and will say to the journalist, hey, I've got a great story for you about Trey or about whomever. Uh, You can't tell anyone where you got it from, but I've got dynamite stuff. So the, you know, there's been this symbiotic relationship that has uh, existed uh, for centuries between private spies and the news media, but things really kind of came to fruition uh, and, and, and metastasized when the Steele dossier came along because, you know, this not only made its way into the news media, but from there it became a public obsession, public political and cultural obsession 
for three years. We'll certainly get into the Steele dossier shortly. First, though, what was Operation Hellenic, and why is it an important component of the private spying industry? So Operation Hellenic was, it was very interesting, one, uh, how I came across it, which was a colleague uh, at the times, knowing that I was leave, you know, going off to write this book, uh, gave me these reports. He had gotten them from a private operative. And he said, you know, I've, I haven't done anything with these, but maybe they'd be of interest to you. And uh, Oper- Operation Hellenic was basically a operation undertaken by a private investigations firm in 2008. And it was, and it was aimed at a sort of guy in Washington who was sort of a consultant to the government of Kazakhstan. Uh, it was clear from, from the material in this report that this individual had been hacked. There's a discussion in the reports about uh, I- implanting a Trojan or, you know, more sort of like a old, you know, old style way of hacking someone into his computer uh, and, you know, surveilling all his email and surveilling uh, his, um, you know, the websites that he visited. And they actually had a, a, a device on there that could pick up whatever key he was writing on his computer. So they knew they could read his messages in some ways before they were ever sent. And, and why this was important to me was twofold. One, this kind of marks the beginning of digital spying, if you will, of cyber spying. Uh, and I kind of trace that story further on in the book as it evolves into more sophisticated means of hacking. And, and, you know, as the news of this past week has made clear when we talk about the spyware that's being sold by this um, uh, Israeli company, NSO, uh, you know, that technology is still uh, evolving. What make Operation Hellenic also very interesting to me was that these reports ended up eventually in the hands of Glenn Simpson, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, who incorporated that information into articles about, you know, dealing with Kazakhstan. And it was sort of a, from a writing standpoint, it was sort of a godsend because Glenn Simpson would then go on uh, to form Fusion GPS, the firm that hired Christopher Steele to compile the Trump dossier and he is a central character in the book, which tells his story, his transition from a journalist into a, you know, a hired gun. Glenn Simpson is an important character in this book, and so is Jules Kroll. This is a guy that I'm going to tell people going forward that he's a sort of godfather of the private spying industry. So who exactly is Jules Kroll in the story that you're telling in Spooked? So Jules Crow uh, was a uh, ambitious young lawyer who had dream. He was a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office uh, back in the seventies, and he had dreams of even a political career. But his co- political career sort of washed out very quickly. He lost his first race, and then he had something of an epiphany. There had been a time where he had t- had take had to take time away from his work in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and take over his father's printing business. You know, they did 
pr you know, printing jobs for book companies, advertising firms, you name it, sort of standard printers. And what he realized was that this entire industry was corrupt and that, you know, there were brokers who doled out printing jobs and they expected to get kickbacks if they gave the job to you. So what Kroll realized is that, look, if I start, you know, bringing this information to advertising firms and publishers and other folks who pay for printing services, they'll save money. And they'll pay me money to point out the bad guys. And that became the sort of beginnings of what became known as Kroll Associates, which was his corporate investigations firm. And what Jules Kroll did, which was really quite remarkable, is that he sort of commercialized the business of private spying. He corporatized it. You know, before he came around, uh, we thought of private investigators as the snoops who hung around in back alleys uh, trying to catch cheating spouses. But he, you know, opened up offices that looked like law firms, people dressed in very nice suits. Uh, they, were, they presented themselves very well. And he created a business model where he could charge his clients, companies, lawyers, whomever, the same types of rates that law firms charge their clients. And he became very successful and very wealthy in the process and also created a model that many competitors would then emulate. Considering the deception and his prowess in New York City in the 1980s and 90s, did he have any connections with Donald Trump? Uh, in fact, he did. <laughs> uh, I point out this very fun, funny anecdote that was reported when uh, Donald Trump, uh, so Jules Kroll uh, and, and other corporate investigators did what were called due, are called due diligence reports. So basically, if I want to buy a company or I want to hire an executive, I might use a corporate investigations firm to look into that company's or individual's background to make sure there's no like, you know, skeletons in their closet or things that will come back and bite me if I get into business with them. And so um, Donald Trump asked Jules Krull, this is the time that Donald Trump was very active in Atlantic City, to look into the ownership of a casino he wanted to buy to see if there were, you know, mobsters involved in the casino. And what Jules Trump, uh, uh, sorry, Jules Kroll reported back was that his investigation had come up clean and Donald Trump was furious. <laughs> he asked Kroll, he said to Kroll, well, what do you mean? Like, it'll be much better for me if there are gangsters involved, because that way I can knock off the price. You know, I can I can pay less for the casino if it's if it's mobbed up. And he asked Jules Kroll to change the report to show that, you know, the people in the casino were bent and Kroll refused to do so. Too funny. Uh, random side note on Jules Kroll, by the way, apparently the father of comedian and actor Nick Kroll. I found that a little bit surprising and I'm sure it's amazing. Very well. talented family. indeed. Very, very talented family. Yes. <laughs> Good spies, as you point out in this book, tend to be excellent at pretexting. What exactly is that? So pretexting is pretending to be someone you're not. It's sort of the stock. It's been the stock and trade forever, both for real spies, you know, CIA, MI6, you know, government spies, as well as private spies. You know, you, you adopt a false identity 
And you use that false identity to try to win the trust of the person who is your target. So, you know, someone might contact you and say, hi, I'm Barry Meyer. I'm writing an article about this or a book about this, but it's really not Barry Meyer. It's someone who has sort of, you know, con my identity or is using my identity or is using an identity that might seem like me hmm. to try to get into your good graces. The, the, the example of pretexting that I spend a lot of time with in the book involves an Israeli company called Black Cube, uh, which became notorious because of the Harvey Weinstein case. They, he was hired by Harvey Weinstein's lawyers to dig up dirt on the actresses accusing him. And, and what Black Cube has done and continues to do is take pretexting to like another phase, a much more digitally oriented phase where uh, they create uh, fake online personas for their operatives. So in other words, you know, if Barry, if Barry Meyer is the fake name that uh, an operative adopts for one reason, they'll create a Barry Meyer Facebook page with all of Barry Meyer's fake friends and a Barry Meyer LinkedIn page with all of Barry Meyer's supposed uh, previous jobs and maybe a page that shows and Barry Meyer's Twitter account and, you know, other pages showing Barry Meyer doing all kinds of things. And, and the whole purpose here, again, is to create a false identity and, and, and con the person who is your target into lowering their guard. For example, uh, in the black, in, in the Harvey Weinstein case, uh, one of the actresses accusing Weinstein was approached, got an email out of the blue from a woman who claimed to be working for an investment fund in London whose main agenda, you know, whose social mission was women, women's rights. If, you know, this is obviously quite funny given what it turned out to be and that, you know, she had heard about, you know, how women in Hollywood were also always the target of um, uh, sexual harassment and that this company was looking to sort of do some, you know, seminars and symposium on this issue. And, you know, with that introduction, the actress let her guard down and the operative uh, eventually befriended her and made off with, I believe, a, a part of a memoir that she was writing about Harvey Weinstein and gave it to Harvey Weinstein. And so, you know, what goes on in that world is really kind of, I, I don't mean to say that it's, you know, like pedophiles grooming their targets, but it is a kind of grooming that is taking place where people, you know, operatives are looking for the vulnerabilities of their targets and then exploiting them. Am I remembering correctly that there was also a connection between those working for Harvey Weinstein and those people trying to help Bill Clinton out as he was facing various sexual impropriety allegations while he was president? Right. In fact, the, Harvey Weinstein uh, hired four separate investigative firms 
including uh, one run by Jules Kroll, uh, and another firm, a, a West Coast firm, uh, run by a fellow by the name of Jack Palladino, who, who died uh, recently. But Jack Palladino's firm was hired by the Bill Clinton campaign uh, in the 90s uh, to go after women accusing him of, you know, sexual picadillos, the so-called bimbo eruptions, if you remember that. <laughs> and so they, he was hired to, um, to sort of like find compromising information that could be used against these women if they spoke out publicly. And I found it quite remarkable that, you know, uh, 20 years later, he would be in the same business, but now working for Harvey Weinstein. More things change. The more they say, the damn same. All right, uh, getting to Fusion GPS now. Uh, you talked a little bit about Glenn Simpson. His company, Fusion GPS, did a lot with the Steele dossier, also known as the Trump dossier. But prior to that, though, what do they do for Theranos right around the time people were really waking up to the reality that Elizabeth Holmes and her company were frauds? Well, I mean, in fact, they were doing stuff for Theranos before hmm. uh, the public woke up to the fact that they were frauds because the person who brought the fraud at Theranos to light was John Carreyrou, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who would later go on to write you know, a best-selling book called Bad Blood about this whole episode. So in 2015, early 2015, uh, John Carreyrou got a tip that you know, this this extraordinary technology that Theranos claimed it had developed, which was basically a way to run blood tests, not by drawing, you know, blood out of your arm with a hypodermic, but simply taking blood from a prick, you know, prick of your finger, uh, was wasn't working. You know, like that, like it, there's no, you know, it, it was producing false results, misleading results. It you know, it hadn't proven out. At the time, Elizabeth Holmes was getting glowing coverage in, you know, uh, Fortune magazine, on television, in the New Yorker, you name it, as a kind of, you know, you know, Silicon Valley guru in, in, in the mold of Steve Jobs. So, so John uh, Carey, who starts investigating all of this, and he you know, is contacted a few months after he begins his investigation by Peter Fritsch, a former Wall Street Journal who was Glenn Simpson's partner in Fusion GPS. And uh, Fritsch, after his initial phone call, you know, says some, you know, well, you know, we were hired by Theranos and, and, and you know, I want to do my best to try to connect you with the company, with executives at the company, because, you know, you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, that's what we do for each other, blah, blah, blah. And they have kind of a friendly relationship, exchanging emails for a couple of months. Then uh, Theranos is still stiff-arming John Carreyrou, not giving him an interview, not making Elizabeth Holmes and others available to him. And there's basically like a rupture between John Carreyrou and Peter Fritsch. They stop, you know, emailing each other. John Carreyrou starts invest, you know, continues his investigation of Theranos. 
He hasn't written anything at this point. And then Peter Fritsch starts his own investigation. But it's one that's actually aimed at John Carew, because what he then does is to have a contractor send what are known as uh, Freedom of Information Act requests to various public agencies that regulate Theranos to get all kind, the same kind of requests that John Carew has made of those agencies for information about Theranos. So essentially he's like, you know, following in the footsteps of John Carew, trying to find out, well, one, what is this guy asking for? What is he getting? And can there be possibly anything gleaned from that as to maybe who his sources are at these places? So he's basically bird dogging John Carew. And in these emails that are in Spook, it's very clear that Fritch is being uh, less than, you know, transparent about what he's doing because he's in these emails, he's telling this contractor, you know, well, how do, you know, I don't want to carry you to essentially tumble to the fact that we're targeting him. So how do we, you know, mask or disguise these requests? So it's not, you know, so it's not clear to him who is making them. And I just found it startling. I mean, I just found it startling that, you know, that you would monitor one of your co former colleagues. I don't care how much money you're being paid, but you know, that to me was sort of beyond the pale. And when John Carey became aware of it, you know, he told me he, he, he found it disgusting. Barry, why is dishonesty such a common part of this private spying job? Well, I would say that uh, it's not simply dishonesty. It's because, you know, these people will say, well, we are honest. We're doing things that are honest. Uh, I would say it's rampant amorality, hmm. a rampant lack of morality, uh, a willingness to do whatever is needed to be done in order to make money. Because bear in mind, it's not nice people that really need the services <laughs> of uh, corporate investigators. It's usually very controversial people, you know, people who have been involved in suspect business dealings or, or you know, who may have been accused of crimes, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and these people don't want to play nice. Their lawyers don't want to play nice. And they're not going to hire in corporate investigators who want to play nice. So, there, so there's this pressure on these investigators to do what needs to be done to satisfy a client because they know that if they don't, that client is going to go find somebody else who will. And I think, as you put it early in the book, the biggest money in that business comes from hiding truths. Now, as far as the steel dossier goes, how and why did Simpson and Fusion GPS connect with Steele in 2016 to try and take Trump down? Okay, so in the in late 2015 into early 2016, Fusion GPS had actually been hired by a conservative group uh, called the Washington Free Beacon Foundation uh, that receives its money from uh, right wing donors, including Paul Singer a big hedge fund operator. And, and Singer and others 
uh, were proponents of, you know, wanted Marco Rubio to win the Republican nomination. They were Rubio's supporters. And so, you know, they and, and the Washington Be- Free, you know, the Washington Free Beacon, uh, which is acting, I guess, as sort of their the, their instrument, um, hired uh, Fusion GPS to, like, go dig up dirt on Donald Trump. I, 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 I know this personally because Glenn Simpson approached me hmm. after I had written a story about um, Jeffrey Epstein uh, and Alan Dershowitz. Uh, that's the first time I ever met Glenn. And he asked me if, you know, what I had stumbled, had I stumbled over anything about Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, I told him, no, I don't think I would have told him yes, even if I had. Hmm. But, you know, he made it clear to me at that point that he was working uh, for people who were looking to dig up dirt on Donald Trump. So, Fast forward a couple of months to the spring of 2016. Donald Trump is now the pre- presumptive Republican nominee. People who had been funding efforts to gather what's known as political opposition research or oppo on him have decided to get on the Trump train. And uh, Glenn and Peter, the, the principals of Fusion GPS, now go to lawyers who represent the Hillary Clinton campaign and say to them, hey, guys, we've been doing this stuff. We got a lot of stuff on Trump and we want to keep going. Will you hire us? And they made a special pitch to say what we can do. You know, we've been looking basically at Trump's activities domestically, but he's been, you know, he's like been going to Russia a lot. So maybe we should start looking over in Russia. They got a green light from this law firm working for the Clinton campaign and then hired uh, Glenn, had actually known Christopher Steele for a number of years. He then reached out to Christopher Steele and hired him to start uh, digging up information about Trump and his associates in Russia. So Simpson and Steele end up meeting with a revolving door of journalists in September and October of 2016, and they let them know about some raw intel that connected Trump with Russia in rigging the election. But as you point out in the book, raw info still needs to be verified. So how many of these reporters were inclined to believe what they were trying to peddle to them? Well, I think that a lot of them were inclined to believe it because, you know, most people were inclined to believe a lot of bad things about Trump because Trump had done a lot of bad things. So, mm. you know, you think like, well, Trump has done all kinds of crazy stuff, like accusing Obama of being born in another country and or been involved in all sorts of controversial business deals. So, hey, you know, him forming co- common cause with Valor- you know, Vladimir Putin doesn't seem like that much of a stretch. For most people, though, the issue was like, how do we verify this information that Steele has brought in? How, you know, we don't know where he's getting it from. You know, people did go out in that in that period, you know, like before the 2016 election, you know, a number of major newspapers, including The Times, uh, The Washington Post and others, uh, sent reporters out to various places to see if they could track down this information 
and they weren't able to. And as a result, the only two articles uh, growing out that, that related in any way to the Steele dossier that appeared before the November election that year were in Yahoo News and Mother Jones. But all the other major outlets essentially ignored it because they couldn't find any evidence to support the allegations. Simpson had flaunted an October surprise that would go against Trump, but ultimately decided not to utilize it. Was this what turned out to be the Steele dossier, or was this something different? That may well have been. I mean, he was trying to, he believed, he believed that, you know, the New York Times was going to break a, you know, write a big story in October of 2016 about, you know, an FBI investigation into Donald Trump's campaign. Because by that time, you know, uh, Simpson was aware that Christopher Steele was feeding his reports to the FBI. So, you know, they were, you know, Glenn and others were, you know, they were trying to gin up reporters to start writing about the fact that the FBI was investing, investigating Donald Trump and others. In fact, the FBI was investigating several associates of Donald Trump. Trump by then. But that never, they never, Glenn knew that he never released what really would have been a bomb uh, because it wasn't really his information. The Bureau had come to Christopher Steele uh, and spoken with Steele about its investigation. But yes, I mean, Glenn was hoping that someone would do a big piece growing out of the dossier prior to the election. That is the, I mean, that stands to reason because that's what he was hired to do. He was hired to gather information and, you know, oppo information and get it out to the public through connections he had within the media. There was no other reason for, you know, the Democratic national committee to pay him a million dollars that was his job though perhaps it's fitting in retrospect how did buzzfeed of all outlets end up publishing the dossier well very uh curiously and this is like a uh an episode i try to detail in the book so what happened was in in after the we're now after the election right and one might think, well, the dossier hasn't come out, so what the hell good is it? You know, like Trump's president. But we're now still in the period between the election and the inauguration, and there's still an effort, both by Fusion GPS and by uh, an ally of Senator John McCain to make reporters aware of the dossier and try to get them to do something with it, you know, verify it, write about it, what have you. And in December of 2016, Ken Benzinger, a, a BuzzFeed reporter, went to like a little retreat that Fusion GPS was having for its staff in the Bay Area. And uh, uh, Ken, who tells the story in the book, basically arrives at this place. It looks like a big bro party. Everyone's like eating steaks and drinking scotch. <laughs> and and and, uh, and Glenn is kind of drunk. And they, they sit down and Glenn starts telling Ken about the dossier, which Ken had never heard about 
before, you know, the PP, the P tape and this, that, and all these, you know, all the salacious stuff involved in the dossier. And, you know, Ken, like any reporters, his interest is triggered. So eventually he arranges, Ken arranges to meet with uh, this former aide to Senator John McCain, whose name is David Kramer, who allows Ken to look at the dossier with the understanding, according to Kramer, that he won't copy it. What Ken does is take photographs of the dossier. They're then sent to the offices of BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed dispatches a team of reporters. What happens, though, is that, you know, to try to confirm things, which they, like everybody else, can't. But what happens is in early, uh, early January of 2017, uh, CNN uh, has also caught wind of the dossier, and, and uh, in particular, Carl Bernstein. And they decide to report not on the dossier itself, but on the fact that that uh, James Comey, the then head of the FBI, has briefed Donald Trump, who is then the president-elect, about these salacious uh, rumors in the dossier. So they 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 do it like a news piece about that, and at that point, Ben Smith decides that, oh my God, we may get beat on this story. And he really, in the space of a very short time, decides to post the dossier verbatim on BuzzFeed's website. And with that, it was almost like the gates of hell opened up because this now became, you know, an obsession for everyone on, on, on both ends of, of the media spectrum. Uh, and, you know, you know, it just, it, it became a cultural and public obsession. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. And eventually, obviously, Robert Mueller ends up conducting an investigation to see whether or not there were direct ties between Trump and Russia with 2016 election meddling. He obviously exonerates Trump in uh, being directly involved with any election meddling. How many outlets apologized and or admitted they were wrong after that? Uh, well, I, I would say that, you know, with respect to, to you know, Russia, Russia, what, what, what Mueller found was that Russia did meddle right. or tried to meddle in the 2016 election, that Trump welcomed that meddling. So I certainly don't want to give the impression that the book or I would ever paint Trump as sort of an innocent victim. He was a victim of a different crime, of a different situation. Trump is a scumbag, uh, but the direct connection between the two was not there. Correct. It was not proven that he or any of his immediate associates had colluded with Russians in trying to affect the outcome of the 2016 election. Although with Roger Stone, there's still some questions about that. But your point is, how many of the news media, you know, news organizations, cable news shows, newspapers, whatever, have gone back and said, you know, we presented dozens of articles and segments about the dossier, you know, using it to impugn that there was collusion between Donald Trump and the Kremlin or between this person and the Kremlin and 
blah, 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 blah. I think in the book, I note that like Rachel Maddow like did 48 episodes over a year or two that were focused. And she had like a whole like hour long special about the dossier. And, and uh, you know, with the with the rare exception and, and the most noteworthy exception is Michael Isakoff, who worked for uh, does work now for uh, Yahoo News. You know, he was the first person, the first journalist who had embraced the dossier to say, you know, we should have scrutinized this more. We should have been more skeptical, uh, skeptical about this. We embrace this you know, without giving it the type of, you know, for journalistic forensic examination that we need to give anything that we publicize. And, uh, you know, Mike, to his credit, was honest about it. Uh, we have yet to see many people following in his footsteps. Neither Simpson nor Steele spoke with you for the book. If you could ask, ask each of them one thing, what would it be? would ask why do you believe that any you know what do you believe in the dossier is true and what evidence do you have that it is true Hmm. early on in the book you wrote quote different reporters have different skills considering that uh, you are so heavily lauded for your investigative abilities as a reporter when you were working for the New York Times and now as somebody independent who is doing a phenomenal job writing books, what would you say your strongest traits are as a reporter? You know, I uh, in some ways uh, I was like uh, like Glenn, like Glenn Simpson. You know, I was a document hound. Uh, you know, I, I love finding obscure documents. I, I love going into like dusty file, you know, cabinets and 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 pulling up things that no one had ever seen before. What set us apart were two things or what I think set us apart both as, as reporters and as, and in our approach is this, a lot of my career was spent involving uh, involved investigating, you know, bad drugs, bad medical devices, what have you. And in that world, you have what I would call, you know, like, clear evidence, right? There are clinical studies, there are reports by doctors that are filed with the government. There's actual material that you can read, you can research, you can use as starting points for an investigation that you can draw upon. Once you get into the world of intelligence, whether it's, you know, government intelligence or private intelligence, you know, the type of work that Glenn eventually ended up doing, you suddenly step into this gray zone where, you know, the kind of world of black and white documents, the thing that Glenn was also used to to sort of researching because he would like track down these obscure corporate connections between people, uh, that all evaporates and, and you're in the shadowlands. And the information is not coming to you from documents. It's coming to you from people. And you, for better or worse, have to place your trust in these people. And I think the recent uh, history of journalism is rife with episodes where that that, that trust was either ill-placed or inadvertently 
misplaced, you know, and I'm thinking more about like WMDs, you know, and the steel report, or now these reports about, you know, bounties paid to kill U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, which seemed to dissipate and fall apart pretty quickly. Uh, you know, you're in, you're in a really, from a, from a, you know, as a reporter, you're in a really squirrely realm. And to me, that places an even greater duty on journalists writing about this stuff to try to get things right. And one of the things I was kind of blown away with when I was working on the book was how many journalists, including some very good journalists whose, whose work I admired, um, did not give either the Steele dossier, Christopher Steele, or Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritsch, the type of scrutiny they would give any other subject. I think that's a pretty fantastic way to end this conversation. It's tempting to ask you about the Rob Moore story, even though it was a side story in this book. That may have been my favorite one in this book. It is insane, but you're just going to have to go buy the book to check that one out. He is Barry Meyer, former New York Times reporter and a member of the Times team that won a Pulitzer for international reporting in 2017. He is also a two-time winner of the George Polk Award for investigative reporting and a best-selling author whose new book is another great one. It's called Spooked, the Trump dossier Black Cube and the Rise of Private Spies. Barry, thank you so much for the time today and thank you for this excellent piece of work. Roger Trey, I really, really appreciate it. Join me next time when I speak with filmmaker Matt Yoka on his new documentary, Whirly Bird, a sprawling LA story. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at gentlemanjesus.com. Thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at booksonpod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.